Well, I hope you find that encouraging. I know when I watched it this week, uh, I was encouraged by it. Just good to be reminded um, of how God is working in the church, not only here in, in Brookside or Kansas City, but around the world. And I think oftentimes it's easy for us to see all of the problems uh, that come along with the church and forget all the things um, that God is doing in the church. And uh, these last couple weeks, we've been looking at how did the local church begin? We've been um, going through this series called Open Here all year long, which is what we've been calling our effort together as a congregation to develop this practice of reading our Bibles on a regular basis daily. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can just Google Christ Community Open Here, and you'll find out um, all of the information about that program that we're doing. And we've been looking these last two weeks at the church, the local church. How did this thing uh, that we call the local church get started? It really is an amazing thing. Today, um, the Pew Research Center, which does research in all kinds of different areas, but the Pew Research Center for Religion points out, um, recently they did a study that there are 2.18 billion Christians of all ages around the world, and they represent nearly a third of the global population Christians are so geographically widespread, the study points out, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably be claimed to be the center of global Christianity. And as the video pointed out, the church has been involved in shaping art and culture. It's been involved in caring for the vulnerable. But how did this happen? Because the church from its very beginning, from the very outset uh, in the book of Acts, faced opposition and persecution from its very inception, and also throughout history, and even today it continues, today as much as ever, to face oppression and persecution around the world. So how did the local church go from being just a few thousand followers of a rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth to a movement of over two billion people around the world in hundreds of different languages and cultures? Or you could put it another way, how in the world did you, as a 21st century person in the United States end up today in a Christian church? How did that happen? How does this place even exist? Well, key in answering this question is what happens here in Acts chapter 9. Um, you and I are sitting here in church today, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, but the, play, the fact this place even exists here today is in large part because of what happened here in Acts chapter 9. And what we see in Acts chapter 9 is that Jesus builds his church and that nothing can destroy it. That Jesus builds his church and nothing can destroy it. In order to understand better what's happening in this passage in Acts chapter 9, we're going to first look at what happened here, what happened in this passage. And then second, we're going to look at what does it mean for us. So, so what happened and then what does it mean for us today? So first of all, what happened in Acts chapter 9? Well, like I said a moment ago, we have been telling the whole story of the Bible this year, reading through all of the Bible together. So we've gone through the Old Testament, we looked at the life of Christ, um, and now we've seen his death, his resurrection. But as we pointed out last week, this is not the end of the story. A lot of the movies about Jesus end at that point, but this is not the end of the story. We've gone now into the book of Acts, and Acts is written by Luke, um, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. These fit together really as one whole, the book of Luke-Acts. And we're continuing to see the story of what happens after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Ascension is the word that the church used to talk about Jesus after his resurrection, going back to heaven to be with the Father. 
And yet here at this point, when we come to Acts chapter 9, it seems like it's all going off the rails. That actually, maybe this was a mistake. Jesus is gone, and the early church, while it had a pretty impressive start with the Holy Spirit descending as we saw last week, it now looks like everything is going to fall apart. Persecution has begun, and if you follow Jesus, your rights could be stripped away. Property was being taken. People were being beaten. Men and women were being imprisoned. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, we read about Stephen, who became the first person actually to be killed, murdered for his faith. He was preaching to a crowd of religious leaders, and they began to throw large stones at him, and those stones eventually crushed his skull killing him. It's a tough crowd. Acts chapter 8, the chapter right before the one we're looking at this morning, says this, this is Acts 8, 1, and we're introduced to a character named Saul. It says, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This would seem like the end. It seemed like Jesus, you know, this idea of the church, it was, it was good um, in, in theory, but actually in practice now, um, maybe we've got to figure out a different plan because this thing looks like it's going to be destroyed. However, it turns out that this was just what the church needed. Jesus said in Acts 1-8 that you will be my disciples, you'll be my witnesses, proclaiming this good news about me, being witnesses of my resurrection in Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. But so far in the story, they've only kind of hung out around Jerusalem. But after this persecution of Stephen, this death of Stephen, they begin to scatter. They run off and they run off to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as they're exiting from Jerusalem to escape the persecution, they can't help but talking about Jesus wherever they go. And so now this persecution actually becomes a means by which the gospel is going forth in the Roman Empire. And, and thousands daily are being saved. This good news about Jesus, it's going viral. But Saul, Saul is livid. Saul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were one of the most strict religious sects of Judaism during the time. Saul was a brilliant scholar. He was a motivational leader. He was passionate. He had studied with the best teachers. And according to the Old Testament law, he was just about perfect. And he hated Jesus. And he hated his followers. And you get the sense that Paul just could not understand how this dead man's followers could continue to grow. And Saul was going to put a stop to it. And so he begins to persecute the church in Jerusalem. And after he sort of cleans up Jerusalem, he decides in Acts 9 to begin to expand his territory. And Acts 9.1 says that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he heads up to Damascus to destroy the Christians there. We don't even actually exactly know how the gospel got to Damascus. Probably some of those followers of Jesus that were there on the day of Pentecost took the gospel back. But there are reports of Christians in Damascus up in Syria. It's about 120 miles away. And Paul is going to go there. Saul is going to go there and destroy 
them. And that phrase, breathing threats and murders, it's describing, really, the picture is that threats and murder are the atmosphere which Paul breathed, the, the way by which he lived. It's almost like I kind of got the image of, of you know, pig pen and the peanuts. There's just this cloud of dust around him. The cloud around Paul is threats and murder. He was threats and murder. Let's just say if you lived in the first century, you could put it this way, if you lived in the first century Palestine and you wanted Christians out of your neighborhood, you better call Saul. There's a few Breaking Bad fans in there, though. They got that. But while Saul is on the road to Damascus and Syria, he's stopped by a blinding light. And he falls on the ground terrified, and he hears a loud voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, Jesus so identifies with this church. One of the metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the church is the body of Christ. Jesus so identifies with this church that when his people are mistreated, when, when his people are persecuted, he feels that it's him being persecuted. When we speak poorly of other Christians or, or of his church, just keeping that, that Jesus takes that personally. He identifies so closely with his body and that he says, you're persecuting me, Saul. He says, Saul, go to the city. Go to Damascus. Saul's blind now. He says, when you get there, someone will come and tell you what to do. And so Saul does. He goes on. He's got to be kind of led by, by his friends. He's completely blinded. And he goes to Damascus, and he waits three days. He's blind and afraid. He had been so convinced that he was serving God. He was passionate. This is what God wanted him to do. But now he's met Jesus. He doesn't know what to think anymore. And so he waits in Damascus. I wonder what his friends were thinking. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what happened to these companions who were with him, but I, I wonder what they were thinking about all this. And meanwhile, in Damascus, there's a Christian there named Ananias. And he also has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus tells Ananias, he says, Ananias, go over to Straight Street. He almost kind of gives him kind of GPS-style directions. Go to Straight Street, and you're going to find a man there, Saul, and he's expecting you. And Ananias says to Jesus, "Um, Lord, I've heard of Saul. Um, He's evil. And uh, actually, I'm surprised you didn't know the reason that he's here in Damascus. I don't know if you knew this, Jesus. He's actually here to destroy us and, and try to imprison us. Um, actually, I, if I had a vision of Jesus, um, I don't know if I'd be as gutsy as Ananias was to kind of argue with him in the vision, but uh, it's understandable. Um, Jesus is asking him to do something that seems crazy. He says, basically, Ananias, take your life in your own hands. Go there, risk everything. Ananias would have been wanting to hide from Saul, and now Jesus is saying, no, go right up to him. Go seek him out. God says, don't worry about it, Ananias. Go, for he... Saul is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Ananias goes. You can imagine that walk down Straight Street was a long walk for Ananias. I wonder how many times he thought maybe about turning back. But he goes. And when he walks into the house, Ananias sees Paul, Saul, And what does he say? 
He says, Brother Saul, Jesus sent me to you so that you could regain your sight and receive the Holy Spirit. And immediately he could see, and immediately Saul was baptized, and immediately Saul begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he, Jesus, is the Son of God. And proving, it says later on in the text, that Jesus is the Christ. And actually, I've already been calling him this, but Saul, who then started going by the name Paul, which is the Roman version of his name. You see, Paul so identified with his mission, this calling that he had to go to the Gentiles, that he even took on this new name. He took on a Gentile, a Roman name. That's how much he embraced his new mission. And Paul then undoubtedly becomes the most influential Christian who has ever lived, Uh, He wrote uh, about a third of the New Testament. In fact, the next four messages that we're going to be looking at together come from Paul's letters to various churches. He went all over the Roman Empire, really the ends of the known world at that time, and he planted churches everywhere he went. He trained leaders all over the empire. The one who had devoted his life to crushing Christians spent the next 30 years building the church The one who had sought to murder people for following Jesus eventually ends up murdered himself for proclaiming Christ. And and when you look in history, no historians doubt that this happened to Paul. I mean, various historians will disagree about what the cause were or what actually happened in this moment. But nobody doubts that there was a person named Saul who lived in the first century who went from being an absolute hater of Christians to being one who proclaimed Jesus. So no one doubts that this happened, but the question for us this morning, now that we've seen what happened, is what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? And what it means for us is that Jesus will build his church and nothing can destroy it. Jesus will build his church, and nothing can destroy it. As we reflect on Acts chapter 9, we've seen this story, but as we reflect on it, we're going to see kind of three things here. That Jesus builds his church in persecution, he builds it by conversion, and he builds it for everyone everywhere. So he builds it in persecution, by conversion, for everyone everywhere. First we see here that Jesus builds his church in persecution, What's shocking is that we find here in the text that that persecution doesn't stop the church from growing. It actually becomes a catalyst for the gospel spreading. And the church is built for suffering. Christians are built for suffering. And what else would we expect, actually, when we look at the person who Christians claim to follow as God? Jesus himself suffered incredibly The church is built on the blood of the saints. It was Saul's persecution of early Christians that got them out of Jerusalem, spreading the news, this witness of the resurrection around the empire. And Jesus even says to Saul in verse 16, he says, For I will show Saul how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And if you keep reading later on in chapter 9, just literally days after Saul confesses Christ, there's a plot to kill him. And the rest of Saul's life will be one of facing death and danger and beating and imprisonment. And eventually he will be executed for his faith. 
I think sometimes here as Christians in the United States, we can kind of begin to freak out about the cultural changes happening around us. And, and I'm not minimizing those at all, but I think we can kind of begin to think, and even I can begin to think, wow, it's such, it's such a hard time to be a Christian here in the United States. And when I talk to people who are concerned about this and who are fearful about this, I'll often point out and and remind myself in those conversations that, that yes, this is a difficult time to be a Christian, but the gospel was built. The gospel flourished in a place where the entire world was against it at the beginning. The gospel can thrive no matter where it's at. I mean, the church was birthed in a culture that literally burned Christians alive, used them as torches to light up their parties. The Emperor Nero actually did that. They were fed to lions. They were tortured. And yet the church flourished. It grew. It changed the world. And in other parts of the world today, I mean, you know this, right? That this is the, the lot of many in the world today. That Christians are being imprisoned and killed as a church, you may know we've been praying for Farshid, one of our ministry partners through Elam, and he's currently serving a six-year prison sentence in Iran for his work as a pastor. And he's already served half of that sentence, and uh, during that time, a couple of his letters from prison have made their way out, and this is one he wrote just this last month, and I, I want to read just a portion of his letter to you this morning. This is from Farshid, who's in an Iranian prison right now this morning. He writes this. He says, How can I complain about my suffering when my brothers and sisters are paying a high price for their faith all over the world? He says, I recently heard about many killed in front of a church in Pakistan. I also heard a young sister in Christ sharing about how she lost her family for the sake of the gospel, and still she is willing to return to share the good news. How can I complain about my suffering when our dear brother Haya gave his life and was killed with more than 20 knife stabs to preach to sinners like me. And what about our dear brother, Dijab, who spent nine years and 27 days in prison and was finally martyred after much suffering? How can I complain about my suffering when I think of our lovely brother, Salmud, and his four precious children? And he was martyred. And what about our dear brother, Michaelian and Rakovich? whose blood is still crying out from the land of Iran to heaven. And finally, what about the Apostle Paul, who was many times in prison, suffered countless beatings, was stoned and often near death, but served the Lord with all of his heart. And this is how he concludes. First sheets write, But after all this, Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when I look at these heroes of faith, how can I complain about my suffering. If you want to find out more about Farshid, you can go to freefarshid.org and you can read some of his other letters and a bit more about his story. And I would encourage you to be praying uh, for Farshid. He also has a wife and two young children there, um, thankfully who have received asylum so that they're safe. Um, But pray for Farshid. Pray for many others like him around our world. His story is one of, of thousands And meanwhile, the church in Iran continues to grow. After reading Farshid's words here, I can't help but feel a little sheepish about my hardships for living out my faith here. 
in Brookside. And maybe we, maybe I, needed to take a little more risk. I mean, it's unlikely that any of us are going to suffer the way that Farshid or so many others have for our faith, at least not here, not now. But we can still take risks. I mean, think even of the risk that Ananias took uh, in going to Saul. Think of the trust in Christ that that took to, to walk into this house of someone who, for all that you know about him, is one who's seeking to kill you. But they did it anyway. The church ended up welcoming Saul in. It, it took a little time, but they welcomed him in. Are we willing to share with a classmate about Jesus? I mean, we're afraid of opening up to people around us and, and actually letting someone in, or, or maybe we're afraid of just doing something brave for the sake of Jesus and serving in a place that's outside of our, our comfort zone here in our city with maybe with one of our ministry partners. And maybe it's just the risk of being generous, trusting God to take care of you, to, to help someone in need when you don't really understand how it's all going to work out. Maybe it's the risk of investing in, in one of our children or students here at Brookside. You see, life is full of risk. We live in a place where there are no certainties. But you see, comfort is not the goal of the Christian life. Ease is not the norm for life with Jesus. Actually, suffering is the norm. But Jesus builds his church in suffering. Jesus builds his church in persecution. Second, we see that Jesus builds his church through conversion. And you can't miss the kind of transformation that, that happens in Paul's life in this moment when you look at the power that God has to change lives. It's no more evident than in Paul's story here. God doesn't, doesn't save us to, to save us to stay where we are. He saves us to make us new, together, redeemed sinners being transformed in a community, the community of the church. And there's an old word that's used to talk about this. It's that word conversion. We've already used it a few times this morning. Conversion isn't just an interest in Jesus. It's not adding Jesus to the many other important things in our life. Conversion is an all-out decision to make Jesus' way of life my way of life. Conversion is like this. Conversion um, is like when you're walking in one direction— and you're, you're headed this direction. Conversion isn't just sort of men taking a little step and, and walking over this way. No, conversion is not a little tweak. It's actually walking this way, away headed toward death, and actually turning around and walking back in an entirely different direction. It's a whole shift, a whole change of life. It's not just a tweak. It's not just an ad. It's a complete transformation. You see, on the one hand, Saul was incredibly religious. I mean, he was about as moral as a person as you could find. And clearly he was zealous. <laughs> but that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. You see, every one of us needs Jesus. Even the good people. Even the religious people. Actually, especially the religious people. The thing is, the religious people, like you or me, maybe, who've grown up in the church, if that's your story, 
sometimes it's a lot harder to see how desperately we need Christ. But even the good people, even the people who seem to be perfect, even they need to be converted. So on the one hand, Saul is incredibly religious, but on the other hand, he was ready to murder people, and he did beat and imprison people. And yet, Jesus still calls him and wants him. Even Paul, who will call himself the chief of sinners, could be converted, could be rescued. And he was rescued for change. Gordon T. Smith has a little book called Beginning Well, Christian Conversion and Authentic Transformation. And and Smith writes this. He says, Conversion is the act of believing in Jesus and being united with Jesus as Lord and Savior. To be converted is to become a Christian. And then I love this. He says, And the purpose of conversion is that we may ultimately be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The purpose of conversion is that we may ultimately be transformed into the image of Christ. So ask yourself, if this is the purpose for which Jesus has been converted, has converted us, have I been converted? Not, not have I added sort of Jesus to my lifestyle, not have I sort of added church to part of my routine, but have I moved from life to death? From going your own way to going his way. And, and I'm not talking about perfection or, or living this life out perfectly. When, I mean, Paul wasn't perfect. But have you been changed? Have you been transformed? Is there a change you can point to in your life? Is there something that you can look at in your life this morning and say, this I do out of obedience to Christ. This is changed in my life because of what Jesus has done and who he is. And if you think about that and you, and you can't point to anything, ask the question, have I really met him? Have I really been converted? Now we're going to talk a lot more about this in the next several weeks as we get into Paul's writings of what does it look like to be converted? How does the gospel work? How does it change us? How does it transform us? But if you're here this morning and you're unsure or if you've truly encountered Jesus, then talk with me. Or talk with someone that you know here. Or or even in this moment, say, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. All of it. I hate my sin. I long to be changed. But that's not all we see here. Sometimes that's where we focus, right? That God saves us for individual, personal change, but there's actually so much more. God doesn't just save us for us as individuals, and that's where this third and final thing comes in here that we see that Jesus builds his church for everyone everywhere. Jesus builds his church for everyone everywhere. And this is so important in the story, we we can't miss this. Do you realize that if Jesus hadn't done this in Acts chapter 9, intersecting Paul on his way to Damascus, that you and I wouldn't be here this morning, that, that those of us who are following Christ that here in the United States, that we wouldn't even be here. Jesus tells us why he rescues Paul in verse 15. He says, He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. If, if you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile, and that's most of us here this morning, I would suspect. And it's through Paul that Jesus opens the door wide for you and me. And this was radical in the first century. 
Because Paul would write elsewhere that Jesus is for the Jews and the Gentiles, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, men and for women, the uneducated and the educated, for everyone everywhere. And this was the first time in history where there was an institution that was so radically inclusive. The church in that time was the most radically inclusive institution ever created. And previously, every faith system had to, was tied to a people group, right? Even in the pluralistic Roman Empire, everyone sort of grouped together by their own religion and culture. The Jews lived together, the Persians lived together, the Romans, and they all did business with the people who were like them, and they only married people who were like them, and they only worshipped with people who were like them. So when the Christians come together— And there's this community made up of Jews and Gentiles, of old and young, rich and poor, people from all different backgrounds. The Roman Empire had never seen anything like it. The Roman Empire had seen a lot of religion, but they had never seen community like this before. And at this moment, everything changed. And sometimes people talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And, and by that, they, they mean that this is the, the one way to be made right with God. The only way to be made right with God is, is by Jesus, which I believe wholeheartedly. And from that angle, it is exclusive. It isn't Jesus plus. It isn't Jesus and. It's Jesus only. But at the same time, it's the most inclusive path imaginable. Because it's for everyone everywhere. Paul, through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, preached and wrote about this and formed churches centered on this, that the gospel is for everyone, everywhere. And for the first time, people from every background, from every tongue and tribe and nation, the Bible will speak about it, began doing life together. And never before in the history of the world did anything like this happened. And frankly, outside of Christianity today, this is still the case around the rest of the world. Listen to what Richard Bauckham, he's a, one of the top scholars on, on Jesus and, and the Gospels in the world today. He makes this fantastic observation in a little book. I'd actually highly recommend it to you. It's called Jesus, A Very Short Introduction, published by Oxford University Press. Bauckham observes in the first chapter of this book, he says, in the first few centuries of, of Christian faith, It spread in all directions, not only to Greece and Rome, France and Spain, but also to Egypt, North Africa, Ethiopia, to Turkey, Armenia, to Iraq, Persia, and India. And Bauckham points out, he says, Christianity was a world religion long before it was a European one. Christianity was a world religion long before it was a European one. Thus, Jesus has never been confined to Western religion and culture. In fact, no other figure has so extensively crossed the cultural divisions of humanity and found a place in so many diverse cultural contexts. I mean, think about this. The the center of Judaism is Jerusalem. The center of Islam is Mecca, Medina. The center of Hinduism is is India. The center of Buddhism is the Far East. Even the center of, of secularism Uh, kind of the anti-religion religion, religion is, is in the West, right? The center of Christianity? There's 67 million Christians in China, 32 million Christians in India, 500 million in sub-Saharan Africa, 175 million in Brazil, 105 in Russia. There is no center to Christianity. Christianity is the only stream of faith in every culture, in every kind of person throughout the entire the world. The church and only the church is that radically inclusive. And why? Because Paul 
and the early Christians knew that Jesus builds his church for everyone, everywhere. I mean, how else could you explain that that you followed Jesus from 2,000 years ago and 7,000 miles away today here? So ask yourself, how is my heart towards others? Am I more concerned about my needs, my desires, my world? Or do I share the same passion that started a movement of Christ followers that has never been stronger? I think it's easily in the abstract for us to say, yeah, I do. I care about everyone everywhere. (laughs) But how is that actually demonstrated? This is where I'm always convicted in my own life. How do I actually see that love for everyone everywhere actually working itself out? Do I pray for others? Do I serve others? Do I share the message of Jesus with others? Do I bear witness to the resurrection? Do I support others in need? Do I live a life of faith with others? See, Jesus builds his church and nothing will destroy it. And Jesus builds his church for everyone, everywhere. And so this morning, when we come to the communion table, we come to eat a meal that offers hope, not only to us, but a meal that holds out hope to everyone, everywhere. And as you come to the table, you proclaim in the act of coming that Jesus is my only hope, that I don't need Jesus plus a spouse, that I don't need Jesus plus a good job, Jesus plus being popular at school. In communion, the gospel, the good news that we our sins can be forgiven, when we come to the table, we pray that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is enough, that he is everything for everyone, everywhere. In communion, we get to taste and touch and see the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins. It's proclaimed to our senses. So this morning, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community to celebrate communion with us. Everyone who says that Jesus plus nothing is my only hope is welcome at his table. And of course, uh, you can also respond during this time by remaining in your seat and praying, or also, as Claire mentioned earlier, by coming and receiving prayer. We believe that prayer is such an important part of what we do together as a congregation. And so um, we will be here in this, this corner. We're still trying to figure out the best place to do this in the room, but we're going to be back here uh, in this corner kind of by the sound booth. If, um, if you would like prayer for something, if something in the message um, or just something in your life, and you say, I need someone to pray with me, we'll be there. Um, I would love to do that during communion with you. When you do come uh, to receive communion, um, just come in groups of four or five and gather around the table and uh, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake together as a group. Um, there's four communion stations in the room. There's two back here, two up in the front. This one in the back here has gluten-free communion elements um, available. As you come, just exit out the side aisles and then return through the center aisle. If you're newer with us, you've probably already noticed that the pews are a little uh, close together. And uh, so if you have to kind of bump into someone or climb over someone a little bit getting in and out, we're used to that here. So um, that doesn't bother us uh, at all if you, um, you do that. We know the pews are narrow. So come now to the Lord's table when you're ready to see and taste and touch the good news of Jesus for everyone everywhere. Mm-hmm.